Okay, welcome to the Another Startup Story podcast. My name is Carmen, um, and together we'll ex- explore and enjoy conversations around entrepreneurship, leadership, and creativity. So we'll delve deep into our careers, businesses, passions, and especially our visions. And you are invited to learn a lesson with me. And so today we have a really interesting guest with us here in Singapore. We have Jason Cohen, who is the founding shareholder and executive director of the Celavi Group. Um, he's also, also the owner's representative for the Fleming Hotel and the CEO of Represent Asia. Welcome, Jason. How Thank are you, you today? Thanks for having me. I'm good, thanks. Good. So you've, got, you've grown up in Hong Kong as a child. You were born in Hong Kong. Um, and you've been in the hospitality workspace for quite a long time. So I think the conversation that we'll have today is very much kind of diving deep into the hospitality industry, specifically here in Asia. And also talking about how you've cultivated such a prestigious brand. Um, and then also hearing more about your personal journey and how you started out. So, sure, yeah. I look forward to it. So do you want to introduce yourself and just tell us what a typical day looks like for you? So yeah, so I'm Jason Cohen. I am uh, one of the founders of Celavi, and I currently look after all the business development for the group. So all the new deals that we're currently signing and opening are all deals that I've been involved in. And um, I'm also at the same time known as representative with the Fleming Hotel, which my part we've had for 10 years basically, and we yeah. renovated about two years ago and turned it into a much, a much cooler, much more fresh boutique hotel in Hong Kong. And it has a very good, uh, Italian restaurant in the lobby called Osteria Masia, which is a joint venture between us and Black Sheep Group. Right, right, yeah. Uh, Celavi's on, you know, huge, huge expansion plans. We opened uh, Taipei six months ago. We've just opened Shanghai a few weeks ago. We opened Tokyo last week. We have Dubai coming up January 15th, and we're also going to open an outlet in Chongqing, China uh, in March, April next year. So, you know, very, very busy and a a typical day for me. I mean, at the moment, I'm kind of on the road Monday to Friday. So I'm kind of away. I'm based in Hong Kong, but I pretty much spend Monday to Friday between all the markets I just mentioned. And I also spend a lot of time here in Singapore because our head office is here. So you've so you're based in Hong Kong, but you and you've grown up there. And like you said, you're always traveling back and forth from Hong Kong and Singapore. How would you describe the two cities? Like, wh- why did you choose Hong Kong to be your so, way? So I was born in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's home. My family's there. My wife's family are also from Hong Kong. So you know, I was born there. I've lived there my whole life, except for six years in Australia and a year in the U.S. and uh, you know, I couldn't wait to come back to Hong Kong once I finished in Australia. And you know, Hong Kong, even though it's it's undergoing some trouble at the moment, um, it's still a fantastic place to live. You know, and um, and I love it there. I Especially love it there. the nightlife. How would you compare the hospitality industry in Hong Kong to Singapore? So I would say, you know, like ten years ago when we were start, we, we opened Celavi Singapore in two thousand and ten, yeah. and I would say back then, you know, Hong Kong was definitely a lot. It was a lot more vibrant in terms of nightlife and restaurants. You know, Singapore, I used to come here a lot for work and it was always a little bit boring, you know. It was a bit backwater-ish. It wasn't, didn't really feel like an international city. And, uh, you know, fast forward to 2019 today and I think Singapore is very, very exciting for nightlife, F&B. There's a lot of amazing places opening here. And I, I kind of feel, Hong Kong's great too, but I do feel that, you know, Singapore in many ways is on par with Hong Kong now, if right. not 
getting even better. Yeah. I think it's getting there, you know, and I think if you fast forward 10 years with what's going on in Hong Kong right now with the protests and the riots, I think Singapore is definitely yeah, going to overtake Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think here as well, you have a very, very good tourism board. You've got a very strong government who are willing to invest in new concepts yeah. and new ideas. And, and, you know, we unfortunately don't have that in Hong Kong, not in a strong, strong way. Entrepreneurship in Hong Kong is still amazing and it's still an amazing place to start a business, but you don't get the same level of support. Right, I see. Interesting. Yeah, I think I've got... Um I've got friends who had applied to Entrepreneur First in Hong Kong and I heard it got shut down because of everything that's been happening. Um, yeah, it's very, it's really sad what's going on there. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Singapore, like, I think the F&B industry is just, you know, is buzzing and there's so many amazing food, uh, food, like you have, you know, pretty much food from everywhere in the world and there's such a big melting pot. But in terms of nightlife, I feel like it's still kind of lacks. I mean, I guess it's it's like the government restriction, right? Um, but yeah, look, I think it's getting it's getting it's definitely getting better, right? Yes, I mean, I do agree. you know, I mean, I since I've been coming here, my first job was with Hyatt Hotels in two thousand and one, and I've been coming to Singapore for work ever since then. And you know, back then it was always Zook. Oh yeah, <laughs> which was great. You know, it was amazing. But they had, Singapore, like, Ministry of Sound as well. Ministry they? of Sound, Zook. Those were kind of the two main places. And you know, you've, again, you come now to 2019, and mm. you know, there's Bang Bang, there's um, there's Salavi, there's you know, there's Lavo, there's Marquis, there is still Zook. You know, there's a there's a ton of places that you can go to. Yeah. Lulu's, and they all have a different offering. Yeah. And, you know, so it's. I think. I think Singapore is getting more and more exciting. Yeah, definitely. I think the government has started to invest a lot more into the creative industry because they've realised that you know it is important. It's not just tech that they need to focus on. So yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So you were introduced to the hospitality industry at quite a young age, right? Um, can you share a bit more about those early phases of your professional life and how you kind of came onto this path and got you? to get you where you are today. Yeah, so I was I was fortunate enough as a kid to, you know, have parents that, you know, had the means to be able for all of us to travel, my brother and I, and we traveled a lot as kids. We went all over the world. My father was in advertising, had a lot of friends. He did a lot of advertising for hotel groups. So from a very young age, we would travel all over the world and, you know, we would stay in these very nice hotels. Yeah. And, and the general managers were often friends of his. So I kind of got exposed in that way and I just built, you know, I built a passion for travel, I built a passion for hospitality, I built a passion for design. And, um, you know, I was back in Hong Kong having finished in Australia in 2000, 2001, and I was, you know, struggling with what to do. I was also actually at 15, I got into quite a lot of trouble in Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, it's a story for another time. <laughs> okay. and, um, and I ended up having to work. So I worked as a bellboy at the Grand Hyatt Hong Kong yeah. for nine months before right. going to a boarding school in Australia. Okay. And I think that experience really set me on a path to kind of working in hotels and F&B. Yeah. Because I knew from that point that that was where I wanted to be. It gave me that experience. So every summer kind of coming back to Hong Kong, I ended up going to work at Grand Hyatt oh, Hong really? Kong again, and I did banquets, I did front of house, I did yeah. catering, and so um, you really got to experience like you know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah and I think with hospitality, you know, you can go to university and you can get a degree, 
but nothing really teaches you hospitality yeah. until you've worked as a barman or you've worked as a bellboy or you've worked in housekeeping or yeah. you know and you've done the different areas that you know there's a lot that has to you, you have to get a lot right to make these businesses tick properly. yeah exactly um, so you know and then so I was back in Hong Kong in 2000 2001 had sort of no idea what I really wanted to do I knew it was hospitality and so I went back to Grand Hyatt Hong Kong and I said you know what can I do you know I've worked here I've worked here for five or six times over the last sort of five six years or ten years you know what can I do and they said well you know with your experience maybe you can and your network maybe you can get a you can come and join us in sales and so that's what I did I joined I was in corporate sales at, at Grand Hyatt Hong Kong for about four years and then I was fortunate enough to be recruited to be the general manager of Philippe Stark's first hotel in Asia right, right. called Jar. Okay. Jar was an amazing thing. There were no boutique hotels in Hong Kong at that time. It, the focus was all on big five-star luxury. And um, a girl called Yen Wong, who's originally from Singapore, had bought with her family a plot, a building in Causeway, in kind of the back end of Causeway Bay, right, right. and had this crazy idea to kind of get Philippe Stark involved and turn it into a 57-room boutique hotel. And it was the first of its type. I was 26, the owner was 27, the CFO was 29, I think. And, you know, here we were, this kind of like very young, not that experienced group of people yeah. trying to make this thing work. And, you know, it was a really small hotel, but it made a huge impact in Hong Kong. And I did that for about three years before setting up my own kind of consulting company for the hospitality industry right. called Representasia. And Representasia started with the Fleming Hotel, and also I was the managing director at the same time as Hip Hotels okay. Asia Pacific, which was uh, a media company founded by Herbert Ipma. Very, very successful group of books, magazines, music, online bookings. And, uh, and then in 2009, the opportunity to open what was then Coup d'etat on the roof of Marina Bay Sands came about. Uh, so just going back to HIP, um, the media company, so what were you doing with them if they were kind of... So it was essentially what, it was basically, uh, you know, the, the idea was to bring all types of highly, HIP standard for highly individual places. And so the idea was to bring all those highly individual hotels onto the platform. Right, so we I worked see. with art, with hotels like the Aman Resorts, Como Hotels, Jar, yeah, yeah. the Fleming, hotels like the Upper House in Hong Kong, um, and you know, so I brought them all onto the platform, Asia-wide, and um, did that for about three years. Yeah. yeah. Looking back at all your experience, where would you say, like, those were the golden years? Yeah, those <laughs> years were, I would say, you know, I don't know, I think the golden years hopefully are still to come. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, they were good years. I mean, it was, it was 2007 when I set up my own business. I was, yeah, I was 29, 30 years old. Uh, you know, it was super exciting, it was yeah. super hard work, it was very scary, um, but you know, I just kind of went for it. And what did that kind of look like, you know, were you going into, were you kind of approaching like new business, new hotels, or had you already had, had like a set of clients ready No, to, so to I, I, I had the Fleming, the, Fle like? the Fleming conversation started before I left JAR, right, and okay. so I knew I was leaving with one, cli with one right, client. Right. And, um, and that was super exciting because that was essentially taking a rundown kind of guest house in Wan Chai and converting it into a four-star yeah. boutique hotel. And uh, it was a couple months after sort of starting that project that 
you know, I was introduced to Herbert Ipma from Hippotel. So, you know, I was very lucky and very fortunate that I, yeah. I managed to start within three months. I had two very good clients. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then since then, I've done lots of, lots of different consulting pieces yeah. for, you know, high net worth individuals, big Hong Kong families, hotel groups, online booking engines and agencies. So I've been very fortunate, actually. When you have, you know, when you look into projects and people approach you, what are some of the things that you think about before kind of accepting? Because, you know, just for our listeners, we have a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs who are starting out and they have so many projects presented to them, but they don't necessarily know which ones are worth spending their time towards, you know. I think, you know, the first thing you've got to do is, A, do the one that you're passionate about. Because if you're not passionate about it, you won't put the hours as a consultant being responsible for your own time. You won't, if you're not passionate about it, you won't put the hours in. Yeah. I think money should come second to that. I think passion, it has to start with the passion. Yeah. And then, you know, you have to look at the feasibility of the project and just make sure you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've turned down lots of things because I thought I could make so a difference. You could add value in yeah. or it was the right fit. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I look at a lot of these very big companies that are super successful. I got approached by a lot of them. But if you can't make a difference with the management team, you probably won't make a difference, period. Because, you know, you can put forward whatever you want to put forward. If they don't execute it, they don't execute it. Yeah. And, and nothing will change. So then, how did you make the transition from kind of like hotels to food and beverage, and then, I guess, working in nightlife as well? Was that kind of when you started working with the Celebi group? So I think it's really a natural gravitation, right? I think like with hospitality and especially with hotel training, you get you get experience in very different sectors. And um, you know, I had had a nightclub in Hong Kong when I was 19 years oh, really? old with some friends. Which one? It's called Amnesia. Very uh, <laughs> underground, in an office building. Wow. Sort of opened at 1 a.m., finished at 10 a.m. Like a lot of drum and bass. Oh, and, you know, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. very kind of underground. And, you know, so, you know, I think it all kind of fits together. You know, yeah. if you're going to be in hotels, you might as well be in restaurants. If you're going to be in restaurants, you might as well be in nightlife. Yeah, to continue the and, night. Um, you know, like I said, in 2010, the opportunity to open Marina Bay Sands came about. And, you know, we, you know, it's a little side story. I mean, when my partners and I put this together, we forecasted to do a certain amount of revenue every month. And within three months, we were doing three times that oh, revenue. Wow. So you never know, you know, you just never know how it's going to turn out. Yeah, absolutely. And so you most recently recorded the Sakao episode in Celebi, here in Marina Bay Sands with the Martinez brothers. Um, uh, can you tell us a bit more about, I guess, the birth of Celebi and how you've kind of managed to cultivate such a prestigious brand and what the journey's been like? You know. I think it's it's pr- first of all I think it's pretty easy to get a really good crowd when you've got the Martinez brothers yeah. and Circle <laughs> televising amazing, it. Yeah. Um, so but for you know, our listeners who don't know Marina Bay Sands, it's basically that the cool special hotel in Singapore. <laughs> yeah, so Marina Bay Sands is an amazing hotel because you know obviously where we sit, Celebi sits on you know the sky on the top of on the sky the top, bar yeah. on the top, and you know we have more you know close to a 360 degree view of Singapore and um, 3,000 hotel rooms below us. So, you know, Celebi Singapore is literally busy from noon until it closes at 3, 4, 5 a.m. Martinez Brothers, our GM of the club, Roberto, he's, you know, he's a, night, he's a nightlife veteran. 
He's a nightlife veteran, and um, you know, through his last 30 years of working in nightclubs, he's cultivated a lot of relationships with yeah. DJs, and that's how we ended up getting Circle and the Martinez brothers to, yeah. to be here. I think, you know, <clears throat> in 2014, January 2014, my partners and I sold a majority stake to a private equity fund called El Cadetan, which is a, is a, a founding private equity fund by LVMH, by Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. And I think that has helped us build the prestige as well in all the markets that we've opened in. Right. So it's, you know, it's been, in, it's been interesting. Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey, I think. Um, the video is great though, by the way, I saw it, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. Um, how would you, how would you say the hospitality industry, you know, you said when you were younger, you were traveling a lot and you stayed at really nice hotels. How would you describe um, the well, actually hospitality not, not just nice, we stayed in nice hotels, but we also stayed in like, you know, little lodges in Koh Samoy with no right, running right. water and we kind of got the, we Exposable, got a broad cross-section. Yeah, yeah, a broad kind of range. How would you describe the difference between um, the hospitality industry between the East and the West? Between the East and the West? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think, you know, I think that we're really fortunate here in the East. I think, you know, because of the land and the terrain and the different cultures, you know, the experience you can have here is extremely rich. You know, it's extremely rich from a heritage perspective. It's extremely rich from a design perspective. Yeah. And it's really ex rich from an experience perspective. Um, I think East and West are both great. But, you know, I would take the East over the West yeah. any, any day. If you were, if a Western hospitality business owner was planning to kind of, you know, migrate or open up something in Asia, what kind of... What kind of challenges would you would you share and how do you think they can overcome this? I mean, I think here, you know, if, if you're talking about restaurants and nightclubs, it's different types of tenants, it's land, it's length of leases, it's the staffing issues. I mean, staffing issues, staffing payroll and costs and prices differ so much in Asia. Yeah. You know, you could be in the Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, yeah. Hong Kong, you know, That's Shanghai. Yeah, some developed countries are very, very expensive to hire people and some developed yeah. countries are quite reasonable. Yeah. Some developing countries can also be very expensive but also very reasonable. Yeah. I think people in the West look at, to the East as kind it's of like the all, same. Yeah, totally. And I think the East is so different. You know, yeah, it couldn't absolutely. be more different. I mean, every country is different. The people are different. The laws are different. And, you know, it's been complicated. Like, you know, we've just opened in Tokyo. And opening in Tokyo with a good partner has been a lot easier than opening in Shanghai. Right, right, I see. Because the laws are so much more clear and... Um, you know, timelines are met in a much better way than they are yeah, in yeah. other parts of Asia. So it's it's very different, and you can see if you research, you know, some of the restaurant groups that have opened in Shanghai from from the West, you can sort of read about the, the troubles that they've had. <laughs> yeah, well, not failures because yeah. they're successful now, but they had a very hard they're time kind of in the struggles. beginning. Yeah, it took them two years, them. some of them, to yeah. really stabilize their business. It is really funny because I do think you know some people kind of. It's like South America, they think it's all the same. And even in Asia, they're like, oh, Asia's the same. But actually, there's so many different cultures and currencies and, you know, way of doing things. And I think that's why companies like Grab and Gojek are incredible because they are there really localizing their strategies uh, within that, those specific countries within Southeast Asia. And they're providing, I guess, like jobs, I guess. But they're really making sure that 
it's just a lot more localized in a sense so it's kind of I think that's one of the keys to why they've kind of scaled so quickly within the last five years or so. Yeah, I mean, if you just take China as a place right I think the West just looks at you know 1.1 1.2 1.3 billion people yeah. and they think you know how can we tap that yeah but if you look at Shanghai as a market and just Beijing they're completely different if you look at the east of China and the west of China yeah they're completely different people I mean a the GDPs are different mm -hmm. in those places, but also their spending patterns are different, their cultures are different, yeah. you know, their income is different, um, and it's really complicated. Yeah, it's definitely. not It's not an easy transition to go from the West. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I was just going to ask you about the, the new launch in Tokyo, actually. What would you say has been, like, what kind of challenges have you faced in terms of, like, in the process running up to launching? Um, and so actually in Tokyo we've been really fortunate because we have a, a local partner in Tokyo that they own equity in the business, they also help us manage on a day to day basis yeah. and they have a hundred restaurants in Japan so they're very very seasoned when it comes yeah. to openings and systems and, and I would say you know our biggest challenge it hasn't really been that much of a challenge but we've launched this new concept called Bao by Selavi which is basically our take of an Asian, we've basically taken a Western diner and converted it into an Asian diner. Okay. And we're basically doing bows, but as burgers. So you know, you could have a chicken karage bao. Yeah, yeah. You could be having a you know an American style hamburger, yeah, but with amazing. a bao. Uh, we have an amazing one, which is a sukiyaki beef one, which was my personal favorite. And so that's been challenging because that's something we've launched from scratch, and the first market for that is Tokyo. Right, right. Are you planning to launch that here in Singapore and Hong Kong? Hopefully, eventually. Yeah, I'd say language has been the biggest issue in Japan. Yeah. You know, just things getting lost in translation, no one's fault. But, you know, the local partner being predominantly Japanese speaking and us being predominantly English speaking. But it hasn't really been a problem. I mean, there's yeah. been a few incidences, but that's been, that has been part of the challenge. Uh, would you say the one in Shanghai has been a lot more of a challenge then? Yeah, I'd say Shanghai has been much more of a challenge when it comes to things like <coughs> fire license, food license, hygiene license, buildings license. Because wow. nothing seems to be that clear in China of you know how to get these things done. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Japan, in a place like Japan, everything like, is very rigid and yeah. it's very laid out. If you do X, you get Y. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in China, there seems to be a bit of gray area in yeah, terms of I imagine. how you get things done, uh, in terms of getting things done to yeah. the right standard. Okay. And last question on you know the hospitality industry how do you think it's changed over the past years and what kind of trends do you predict for the next three to five years i think it's getting more and more exciting i think you know you've got real talent and real chefs kind of emerging from everywhere uh, i think social media has also helped to kind of change yeah, that yeah. because you can get recognized so much easier um, I think that you know there'll always be a place for in big international cities like Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo. There'll always be a place for big venues like Celebi. But I actually see, and this is part of the reason why we created Bao, is I actually see the trend going much more towards smaller venues, where the price point is cheaper. You can turn the tables more frequently, louder places. You know, there'll always be a room. Yeah, more. You know. It's not just about fine food. Yeah. It's about fine food, drinks, music, and people, vibe. And vibe <laughs> yeah. you know. Those are the restaurants I like. Yeah. You know, sure, I, I love a, th I love to go to a three-star Michelin 
you know, Japanese omakase sushi experience, one of my favorite meals ever. Yeah. But could I do that every night of the week? There's no way. Yeah, it's just yeah. too, as, a, as an experience, as a food experience is a great, it's great. Mm -hmm. But as a atmosphere experience, it's not amazing. Whereas, yeah. you know, I think black sheep in Hong Kong yeah. are doing a fantastic job of incorporating all those elements into their yeah, restaurants. Absolutely. Someone else is telling me how black sheep is <laughs> their favorite restaurant there. Yeah, so black sheep have got, you know, we're partners with them in the restaurant at the Fleming Hotel. And I think they have 22 restaurants now. And, you know, they're, they're amazing at what they do. Yeah. Okay, so I guess... So you haven't come from a financial or like a legal background at all, right? Um, and so my question is, what tips can you kind of give to creators or those who are, you know, in the hospitality industry and it may not be physically working in, you know, the hotels that maybe they're creatives or, or designing or working with clients who are in the hospitality industry? Um, how would you, what kind of advice can you give to make them become more commercially sound as an entrepreneur? I think, you know, you, it doesn't really matter what background you come from. If you don't understand numbers to a certain degree, you don't understand things like P&Ls and cash flow and things like that, you better learn before you start anything, really. Yeah. Because I don't come from a financial background and it's been, it was challenging you know, in the very beginning. I found it very challenging, but you have to kind of learn those steps. You have to learn, you have to know enough legally, you have to know enough financially. Yeah. And you know, business is all about cash flow. And if you don't understand cash flow, you will end up, you'll end up dying because no business is basically up forever. Yeah. You know, every business has dips. And you know, if you don't have the cash flow to sustain those dips, then you're not going to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the common misconception is like, oh, if you're making enough profit, you'll be fine. But two very different things, of course. You know? yeah, and also, you know, you could be making profit, but then when the profit comes, you want to expand. You know, and it's, it's and you can't extract the cash out. Yeah, yeah you got to keep. You know, and as an entrepreneur, you know, you you have to take the risk. That's why I think it's really good to do it when you're young. You know, once you have wife, kids, it's a lot harder unless you have a lot of money in the bank. Yeah. You know, I did. I started when I was whatever I was, 29, 30 years old, and I had a girlfriend who became my wife. But I didn't really have any financial responsibility apart from a bit of rent. You know. I, um, so then what were you doing to, were you like reading books or just educating yourself online? I mean, I've always read you? a lot. I've always read a lot and I've always read a lot about topics that interest me. Um, but I think topics, topics like, you know, how to start a business. Um, I've read a lot of autobiographies on business leaders, uh, yeah. politicians. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of biography type stuff. Yeah. Real life kind yeah, of. Yeah, I love them too. I've read a lot of history, history mm -hmm. stuff as well. Um, but I think the biggest advice I could give is, is that, you know, really get into the business and don't try and understand the factor that you're good at. Understand all the factors, you yeah. know, the issues HR face, the issues finance face, in this business purchasing, you know, purchasing is a huge part of our business. How do we understand that? How do we streamline that? Yeah. Um, so that, you know, I, you have to kind of know a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. You can't yeah. just focus on one area. On one area, yeah, absolutely. And when you first kind of first started out your consulting business, I guess that was kind of like the big risk, the big leap. What would you say you was the biggest sacrifice for you? 
think the biggest sacrifice was, you know, I was earning a very good salary doing what I was doing, plus bonus and everything. And then suddenly I was kind of out on my own. Yeah. And I was lucky because I did have the Fleming and, you know, I did get a small retainer from them. But I w essentially walked away from a lot more money every month to start the consulting business yeah. and really had no idea where it was going to go. You know, and I think that's scary for every entrepreneur, yeah, no matter what age you, know, you are. Whether you're in your 20s, you know, bootstrapping something with your parents' money to try and do the next big startup, yeah. or you're starting a restaurant in your 50s, it's the same thing for everyone. You know? it's, yeah. sc it's scary. It's so scary because you don't, you honestly don't have any idea. It's like inside, like deep down in your intuition, you know you want to do this, and you don't want to live life and regret anything. If I don't do this now, then I will never do it. But you honestly have no idea where you'll end up. But I think that's part of it though it's like being taking the risk and, and and just realizing that you'll figure it out whatever happens you know yeah, and it, you know it's it scary but it's also exciting yeah and I think the rewards far out you know far out um, weigh the risk the risks associated yeah, yeah. with it I mean it's kind of I've kind of feel like I've done full circle because you know I've always kind of since 2007 I've kind of been an entre I've been on my own being an entrepreneur and um, you know, in 2014, when we sold a majority stake to a private equity fund, I left the business, and I was about to start an organic supermarket in Hong Kong. And the private equity fund called me back and said, "Look, we need you to come back and help. We, we're in a bit of, you know, not we're in. We, we need someone who understands the business to help us grow." And so, kind of, I kind of now work for a private equity fund. So I'm kind of back into corporate. You know, I've gone kind of yes. full circle back Before into back corporate into life. It. But yeah. I'm sure, you know, at some point, I will end up doing something again myself. Yeah. What kind of advice can you give to young entrepreneurs who are looking to take? They're like in that limbo phase where they just want to make that leap, but they, you know, because I think a lot of it is very much like self-doubt. It's like fear or failure essentially, and it's like all in the mind. What kind of advice can you give? You know, having experienced it with everything that you've done under your belt. I think, you know, if you believe in your idea and you have the financial capabilities of launching it, you really have to just go for it or otherwise for, you'll forever doubt. Yeah. You'll be forever thinking that, oh God, I should have done that or I should, you yeah. know, and then time goes quickly, especially yeah. as you get older and if you don't do it when you have a shot, you may never do it. Yeah. So I would just say, you know, if you're a young entrepreneur out there who's kind of got that fear of failure, if you believe in your product and you believe in what you're trying to do, you should just go for it. Yeah. It's really the only way to do it. Um, and, so and and I would say don't work. Most people's intuition is pretty. I would say most people's intuition is pretty good. Don't take money from people you don't think you can work with, and don't work with bad people. And that's actually something that comes up a lot. I think yeah, like trusting. It's not what you do; it's who you do it with. Yeah, I mean, I've had we've had you know our legal issues among Celavi quite well publicized and um, you know we've we've had a fair share of that we learned we had to learn that the hard way yeah I guess in terms of that kind of leads on to another question in terms of working with the right business partners what what would you say you look for now um, if you were to partner up with someone as in in terms of characteristics I think it I think it's hard right now for me to answer that because I don't really have the next thing that I'm gonna start. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is no I would not theoretically I would want someone that believes in the concept I'm trying to create and can add value or is willing to put money in 
and have no and add no add nothing in terms of you know like opinion on how to do it so a silent investor you know i think you either have to have a partner that is completely aligned with you yeah. and your vision and is willing to work to help you build that vision yeah. or you have to have money that is completely silent and you know willing to let you run with it right, right, right. it's it's horrible when you get stuck in the middle you know when you're kind of in the middle of yeah it's like all or nothing really yeah um, so what are the top three things you would um, suggest someone should consider before starting a business? Sorry? What are the top three things that you would suggest someone to consider before starting a business? I mean, proof, proof of product, I think is very important. You need some type of, you need some type of, you know, idea that what you're trying to create can it's make the change and is in demand. I would say make sure you have capital because it's very hard if you're if you as a founder or entrepreneur are constantly raising money because you are constantly running out of money then that process is harder and harder it's very tiring and you're not focused on the job at hand yeah. which is executing your vision and um, and I would say the third thing is you know especially in Asia we were talking about it before but you know especially in Asia you know networks are small you know whereas the West might be four five six degrees of separation we're really one to two degrees of separation use your network to get the support you need yeah. don't be afraid to pick up the phone and yeah, call and ask for help I do that constantly still yeah you know no I agree I think people bring opportunities and you never know like even just speaking to a friend not necessarily to pitch an idea but just to talk about things you never know your friend can kind of give a different perspective and, and I think yeah having the right people around you is so so important um, so yeah and so last couple of questions what is what does your morning routine look like and do you have any kind of rituals so my morning routine I, I wouldn't say I have any like set rituals but my morning routine is generally I get up I have a are coffee you, are you an early bird I can be an early bird, but generally because of the work that I do, I'm not like a 6 a.m. morning. I'm generally in the okay. office by 10 a.m. and right. I generally wake up about 8 o'clock. I get up, have a coffee, read the news, yeah. uh, have a cigarette, and, um, and basically just get showered, changed, and go to work. I try and work out every day around 4 o'clock because that's a big gap. It's a good gap in my day. Yeah. Uh, 4 o'clock is a good time because I can kind of do a workout and then shower change and feel refreshed for the evening. Before dinner. So it kind of breaks everything up. Yeah. But I wouldn't say I have any real set routine. I mean, that's kind of my basic routine, but I always try Monday to Friday to, you know, get a small workout in at yeah. around four, 4 to 5 o'clock. And do you, when you say, do you go, do you run a lot or do you usually I generally go to, go to the, the gym. gym. Yeah. I go to the gym. And so you were talking about books earlier on and how you read a lot. If you had to, if you had to give one book to someone, well, what would it be? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> the hard one. I mean, one of my favorite books, to be honest, is something that it's a it's the it's a biography it's the unauthorized biography of Steve Wynn. Okay. who's the casino magnet Steve right. Wynn who you know really came from a very very troubled background to build one of the biggest casino fortunes in the world and then you know kind of most recently has been in the news for all the wrong reasons yeah, yeah. part of the Me Too movement but I think you know prior to this whole Me Too thing I think Steve Wynn was one of the most interesting characters you know and if you read his biography and you see the trials and tribulations of his life 
you know, it's quite amazing that he built what he ended up building. Yeah, yeah. It's a great book. Um, you know, I think another great book actually is a book, the the, the, bio, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. That's so weird. I was reading another book which mentioned Nelson Mandela. I haven't read the autobiography, but I just I bought the book because I read this snippet. And it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the most remarkable men yeah. to ever live. You know, I'm yeah. currently reading. The I book. need to read that. I've just yeah, I've it's a very it. good I'm book. I'm really excited. And I'm currently reading the book on Jack Ma. Okay. On the biography of Jack Ma, which is again truly interesting. I mean, yeah. he started out as a translator in Hangzhou, China, wow. basically taking Western tour groups around Hangzhou. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, was obviously very clever. He just saw a gap in the market and went for it. Mm. And he was young enough at the time to really go for it too. And often you find in those situations, people don't—they don't have as much to lose. So they kind of just go for it. I think. It's usually when you have that comfortable job where you feel like there's a lot more to risk if you were to take that leap because you're leaving your security and you know financially and emotionally. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Okay, final question. What would you say is your like favorite philosophy in life? Or if you had to have a big billboard and you had your name on it and a quote, what would you have said on it? One day at a time. One day at a time. I like that. Especially in Asia because things move so quickly here. And so I think, yeah. I think as well, you know, when I think about like, when I think about all the things I have to try and achieve by next month, like as an example, it's easy to get overwhelmed overwhelmed and think, shit, how am I going to do all that? You know, there's no way. But if you just, you know, if you just try to accomplish every task you can and complete what you need to do every day, I think, you know, you can get, anyone can do anything, basically, if you focus like that. That actually brings me to one more question. And it's around, I guess, like time management and productivity, because I think nowadays we have so many things like calling our our attention and there's so many distractions and especially with like social media like you wake up in the morning you want to check your your whatsapp messages or wechat emails like linkedin messages like there's just you know there's so so much so many distractions um and so how would you what kind of like tools do you have and what do you use to make sure you're staying really focused on the one task at hand and you know just like get, getting shit done. <laughs> I mean, I can get you know, I can get quite, I can get quite temperamental, especially when I've got lots of stuff on. Yeah. So I find that you know, I just have to be, I have to really, if I find something that's irritating me, mm-hmm. I have to take a step back, take a deep breath, mm-hmm. think through the problem before going back to address it. Right. I think you know, everything takes time, and um, I actually think you know, just on a on a bigger picture thing, you know, it's easy to get stuck into like Netflix and just what like I travel a lot on a plane. Yeah. It's easy to get stuck into Netflix and you know watch three four hours of series, but I find actually when I read, whether it's work related stuff, news, yeah. or biography, my mind is a lot more at peace. Right. You know, and I'm a lot calmer as a person. Um, you know, so I just I try and like you know try and stay as calm as possible. Yeah, basically. absolutely. I love that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of reading. I don't actually. Yeah, I never watch Netflix, and I mean, I should I should watch more movies and series. But if I had a choice to either read or watch Netflix, they always a book. <laughs> I do both, but I try and end the day with 30 minutes. Yeah, away from screens yeah. and like you know digital um, noise. I guess. Yeah. All right. Well. 
I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to kind of add or share with our listeners. Um, I'll just, I mean, I'd just say, you know, if you're an entrepreneur starting out, you know, just go for it, stick with it, and, you know, just do the best you can. You know, some people will succeed in everything that they're doing, and some people may not, but it's okay. Yeah. You, know, you can always start it's again. It's all a learning. And I've had, you know, I've had successes and I've had failures. You know, I've had done lots of different things. Yeah. Some have done very well and some others haven't done that well. Yeah. You know, but you just you've got to go for it. Otherwise you'll be forever think questioning why you didn't do yeah. it. Yeah. And that's actually a worse place to be in than failing, I think. Totally. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jason. Um, I'll leave all the details on the show notes so people can, you know, find out a bit more about what you're working on and the businesses that you're involved in and we'll also post the transcript uh, conversation on our website as well uh, where you can find everything on anotherstartupstory.com awesome thanks so so much much, Carmen nice meeting you (laughs) thank you